there, I'm Michelle Bunch, and this is Enthusiasm Diaries. Enthusiasm is contagious, and in this podcast, we get to share in the enthusiasm of others and perhaps spark some of our own curiosity along the way. Thanks so much for listening. Dana Lerman is an infectious disease physician who recently shifted gears into the field of psychedelic medicine. Well, Dana, thanks so much for being here to talk about your experience and what you're enthusiastic about in the field of psychedelic medicine. Um, I was thinking a good place to start might be thinking about what initially got you interested in infectious disease. That question goes back to when I was probably eight years old at sleepaway camp. Um, I was, I was a very inquisitive, curious child always kind of investigating things, looking under things, inside of things to to learn more. And when I was eight years old at sleepaway camp, my my bunkmate and best friend had um, actually a case of pinworms. And yeah, so um, the counselors taught us what that was, and I was intently listening. And apparently pinworms migrate out of your rectum at night, and they lay eggs. So um, I had convinced my bunkmate to uh, allow me to take a look with a flashlight in the middle of the night um, with her consent. Uh, And I was always just really curious and uh, had an interest in in microorganisms since I was a child. Also, um, yeah, so that manifested in several different ways growing up, but um, I ended up going to, uh, right before I went to medical school and when I was in high school, I was working in a camp for kids with cancer. And that's when I figured out that I actually wanted to be a physician. So I kind of was putting all these things together. And then, um, can I I ask what specifically was that, that made you think physician for sure? Not just because it sounds like the thing from sleepaway camp was the organisms itself and perhaps something about the study of that, but this was where the physician patient care part came in. Yeah, sure. So when I was working at this camp for kids with cancer, I developed a very close relationship with a four-year-old child who had a hepatoblastoma, which is a liver cancer. And it turned out that my mother was actually very good friends with her mother. And so it was, I got to actually meet with this child outside of the camp and we developed a very, very, very close bond. And um, then I started to learn about her disease process and the treatments that they were doing. And I became then very interested in medicine. So that's how, um, that's how that happened. I, all of a sudden then found myself wanting to be a pediatric uh, oncologist. I wanted to shave my head for my patients and I was going to just go straight in pediatric oncology. Um, So it was after that, that I pursued a career in in medicine Mm -hmm. and had various interactions where I wanted to be different things along the way, which I think is, is the best way to do it. I think if you go in with a tunnel vision, you might miss an opportunity. So I went from, wanting to be a pediatric uh, oncologist to OBGYN. I, and, then I, and then I found infectious disease um, when I was working at Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, yeah, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So, Were, Was it like a feeling that you had in, like in your body or anything that felt familiar to that eight-year-old girl at sleepaway camp? <laughs> Definitely. I didn't really have to convince patients to let me examine them at that point. Uh, it was really, I just found 
like I found a calling. I found that, you know, I had, I gravitated towards patients with HIV and AIDS. Um, I was very interested in their different kinds of diseases that they could get because it was really kind of a, like a wide open playing field, honestly, for microorganisms and someone who doesn't have much of an immune system. And then that shifted um, from HIV and AIDS to patients who were just overall immunocompromised from chemotherapy or organ transplant. So that's what I developed a deep interest in, which shifted to an interest in patients with artificial hearts, so left ventricular assist devices. Oh, wow. Well, and when I think about infectious disease, I think about so many, like, it's, it's like learning about things that could be broad to also something that's like super rare. And, um, I wonder, I, I mean, that's, that's obviously very surface level, but I imagine there's quite like a workup process and trying to rule out things. And it, did you enjoy that part? Almost like it's like solving a mystery. I did. I, I always tell people that if I wasn't doing infectious disease, I used to tell people this, that I would probably be some sort of detective or investigator or because it is, you really have to do a deep dive into their personal life and their medical history and their social history and their travel history. And um, most in most hospitals, uh, physicians who are not infectious disease providers look to infectious disease providers' notes to see what's going on with the patient. Mm. Um, we write the longest notes and also the most um, detailed, but also very specific in terms of what's actually happening with the patient. So it's a very extensive history. And it's not always this like, sexy, um, rare organism, right? Sometimes it's a complicated pneumonia or um, a diarrheal illness, something like that. But mm-hmm. it's very yep. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I have to think like, I'm sure you've seen so many things, but then I'm thinking about the time frame of like January, February, March, 2020, and just me at home watching the news. It's like, what is this COVID-19? I mean, I can only, I mean, our whole world, I feel like was trying to figure this out and then thinking about it from the brain of someone in infectious disease, I can only imagine. Um, what was that like? Um, I felt very out of control and I'm not used to really feeling that way. I felt, uh, you know, when we were watching what was happening in Italy, I got on my Facebook and I made, I made a huge declaration and I said, listen, we are days behind Italy. You have to go and get your supplies, get your food, get your medicine, get what you need. Um, because that, what is going on there is about to happen right here. And it was almost like my, my close friends and family heard me and were listening. Um, but it was, and then it just came and it kept coming. And so I was seeing it firsthand, young people coming into our ICUs. Um, and this was still when we weren't wearing masks. Um, There's a lot of confusion in the beginning about the transmission and it was very difficult, um, in, in retrospect, honestly, it's still very difficult, right? Because we're still, we're still unfortunately living this um, mess, but um, yeah. Was it, um, I mean, I, so yeah, it's like just knowing that this is coming here, having people be prepared, but prepared in a very, with a lot of unknowns, again, to the, your point about transmission, was, was there a lot in your line of work, infectious disease specific about like, what kind of organism is this? Like, were you, were you involved? Um, I'm sure with, with people within your department, but just trying to figure out, 
I, I mean, I just think we were all figuring it out as it relates to our lives, but you were trying to figure it out in terms of all these other layers from a medicine and infectious disease standpoint. Right. I think, you know, this was literally like you were on the standing on the train tracks and a train was barreling down and you couldn't, you could maybe get your whole body out of the way, but not, not all of it. I maybe like a limb was kind of stuck on the track because, you know, an infectious disease in a viral pandemic and not just infectious disease, right? The critical care providers and all the other providers that are helping these patients, it's, we're not just the doctors in the pandemic, right? Like we go home and we have a family. So we're also people navigating the pandemic also. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We have children in school, right? We want to go to the grocery store. We want to go to yoga. Like we, you know, our lives were impacted everywhere that we turned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it it was really very a challenging time. Um, and again, like I said, it, it continues to be that way. But you know, when it first happened, we were, we knew it was a virus. Um, It's very interesting to me in retrospect, looking at why we didn't know that it was um, transmitted in the air. We, you know, coronaviruses are transmitted that way. Um, It was, it was kind of like, you know, we just, I remember very early on in the pandemic being in a group of uh, healthcare providers in a room packed in like sardines and COVID was around. We knew it was there. None of us had a mask on. None of us were social distancing. And I remember my partner, because this is what we knew at the time, standing up in front of all of us, telling us why we shouldn't wear a mask, that if we touch our, if we put the mask on, that we were, it's going to be on our hands. So we're more likely to get it that way. Mm. But there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of mistakes that were made, but this, we were all being thrown onto the train track at the same time. So it was hard for everybody. And I, I would reach out to my colleagues on, in the Infectious Disease Society of America and all these other groups that I was a part of um, and say, you know, like, I just wanted to rent a van and go out with a loudspeaker and tell everybody what was coming because it just felt like no one was taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just a horrible feeling of being completely out of control. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately what stands out is the, is the, the politics and how all of a sudden that became, um, that became something I, I had never, ever considered my career political, politically involved ever. I've never, ever even thought of the CDC as a politically run organization. It, the CDC was always just an institution that I had trusted, um, that I looked to for guidance and resource throughout my training. Um, but then all of a sudden that wasn't the case anymore. And I am amongst a lot of my colleagues didn't trust the CDC all of a sudden I would, you know, I would read the guidance that they would put out and then they would take it back in a heartbeat. It was, it was almost like the doctors on the ground and the, and the scientists and experts were writing the policies. They would launch it. And then the, and then the government really got involved and said, Oh no, you can't, you can't tell them that they can't sing in church. You can't. And then they would pull out things that we as scientists and physicians knew that was really who we were supposed to be listening to. So it was, it was really just the most, um, a wild example of a government corrupted agency that I have ever really seen, mm. which was very sad. I mean, and you know, and it continues, right? All of a sudden wearing a mask is a political statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting a vaccine is a political statement. 
Right. So it's it's really unfortunate because the virus is still there. The virus doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat. <laughs> right. Not at all. Well, and it's so interesting that that's what stands out because hearing you talk about what initially got you interested, it wasn't anything about like taking a stand politically or researching things from the political aspect. I mean, it, as I'm hearing you, it speaks to this such a shift for sure. Huge shift. And I think that a lot of people are leaving medicine today because of it. You know, we don't, we're not, we're not in the government. We're not in government. We don't want to be dealing with this. We're doctors, scientists, nurses, other healthcare providers that really just want to do our job. We went to school for a really long time and we don't want, we don't want this kind of crap getting in the way. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. It's not fair to anybody. Right. Right. Well, and I think, again, just kind of being a lay person and and seeing things about third wave, first wave, second wave, third wave, Delta. I mean, I I imagine like if you could do a graph of all these moments, and of course, there's higher incidences, hospitalizations, all those things. But I have to think about just where physicians and medical teams would be emotionally with all all of this. And, And again, 18 months is a long time to be functioning in a state of crisis, really. Um, Can you share more kind of about what you saw as a physician within your teams, kind of what you saw as, as more months went by, maybe walking us through into like the summer of 2020 and beyond? Yeah, I think, you know, um, so initially when coronavirus hit, there was a hospital wide policy that one nurse, one uh, physician per patient Mm -hmm. as to not expose all the different healthcare providers. So consultants such as myself were not allowed to access patient rooms. So I would only be allowed to talk to a patient on the phone. Um, And also the other reason to do that is con- to conserve PPE, right? Cause we didn't have, we hardly had anything. Um, so that was very difficult. Um, and honestly, it sounds weird, but for the first, at least three weeks of the pandemic, I worked from my house. I worked from my yoga room mm-hmm. where I brought a, not a yoga mat, but I brought a desk and a chair and I sat in that room for three weeks uh, working probably at least 12 hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you don't, a lot of patients I would call on the phone, but they're too short of breath to even talk to me. So I would just read their notes in the computer and look at all their labs and talk to their doctors. And then I would write a note on them. But when you don't see a patient and when you don't talk to them on the phone, then you also can't get paid for an interaction. So I worked for three weeks, um, without getting paid, which is fine. Honestly, it's a, my public, service, I feel like that I did in the pandemic for my community. Um, and then what happened was coronavirus cases started to slow, slow down in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I had friends, um, in California that literally haven't had a break in months and months, just caring for COVID patient after COVID patient. And these are the places where there were morgue trucks outside of the hospitals. So I, Flew out there with some of my other co-workers um, from different places. One actually came from New Zealand and one came from New Jersey. And we went and relieved our, our co-workers there. And it was it was horrible. It was it's a whoever says that it's not a war zone, it like has no clue what a war is. Sure, mm-hmm. it's it, people's limbs aren't being blown off, but um 
it looks pretty similar, honestly, when you're in a hospital where you don't have enough resources, you don't have enough nursing, you have patients in the hallway, um, and patients coming in there who are every single one of them is so terrified to die. And you don't really have like a lot of great things to say because COVID is wildly unpredictable and you have no idea if the person one minute is going to be breathing, uh, you know, on low levels of uh, supplemental oxygen. And then you can come back an hour later and all of a sudden they're intubated in the ICU. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just like the, it can, it can just be minutes, seconds, even if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. And these people are alone, right? So you have to understand also there you have, I had, I had this one gentleman in particular, an elderly patient who came in who couldn't breathe. He was requiring a lot of oxygen. We're giving him all these different medicines and he's calling out for his wife, you know, call, he didn't know where he was, but all he's calling out for his wife and that will like never leave. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just that that's such a, to not be able to be with loved ones. I mean, it's, that's just like a whole nother level of suffering, honestly. And mm-hmm. is there other, I mean, I'm sure you have so many stories. Is there other moments that stand out? Another story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's one in particular and that what people also don't understand is when, when you have a hospital that's inundated uh, with COVID patients, they can't care for other kinds of patients, um, heart attack, strokes, but also other kinds of infectious diseases will come into the hospital that requires a serious level of attention to detail. So I had a woman who came into the hospital who was critically ill, and there honestly wasn't really the time to to talk to her family and to get all of her story and her history and put everything together because I couldn't keep up with all the patients. And I, she ended up having a very rare infectious disease that she caught by feeding stray cats outside of her house. So she died. And people don't understand that that happens, right? That's going to happen when you have not enough nurses, not enough doctors, not enough time to care for all the people. Because you can't, just as we're limited human beings, you can't dedicate all that time that isn't there isn't there so well, and I, I feel that so much when you were describing like why everyone looks to infectious disease notes typically because of like how much you were saying about understanding social history and lifestyle and all these things and and infectious disease physicians you think of in COVID but as you're just talking I'm like and and there would still be other infectious disease processes and Wow. Yeah. And, and perhaps a story that maybe wouldn't be told on the news when we're talking about COVID. So, and you were, you were working not just as a physician, but also as a consultant, right? Um, can you share a little bit more about what that looked like? Yeah, sure. So when the case numbers came down here in Colorado, it became very obvious that you don't need an infectious disease doctor to take care of a COVID patient. You can train hospitalists, critical care doctors. They can take care of coronavirus patients. Sometimes infectious disease doctors need to get involved when the patient has a very complicated, superimposed bacterial or fungal infection on top of coronavirus. But general, generally, coronavirus patients don't need infectious disease provider. What seemed very obvious is that we were needed way more in the community than in the hospital. So I started a company called The COVID Consultants where we, we went 
all over the country. I got licensed in every state. Um, and we would go and fly out to different businesses who would hire us to develop risk mitigation protocols um, to help them safely reopen. Because it was obvious that this was not going away. This is not going away. And people need to work. They need to work. So that was all very clear. Um, and these companies really they were really trying. They really wanted to stay open. They wanted to keep their employees safe. So they hired us to just generate different protocols. And they were very specific protocols for each individual place, whether it's a place of worship, a restaurant, um, a school. And then we also started to do at-home COVID testing. So we would send patients a, a PCR tests at their home. Um, and because I had a license in every state, I was able to do that. So... And our, our testing company is different in that any patient who tests positive with us, I personally call them and I explain oh, wow. to them the different things that they need to do after testing positive, which still two years into the pandemic and these people, it's like they've heard of this for the first time, which is so mind blowing to me um, and sad. But at the same time, it also makes me feel like there's still a need for me to, to do this kind of work. So Sure. You mean things like how long to quarantine, not to be? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, most people don't know that after you have coronavirus, you don't need to get another test to document that you're negative. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a teaching opportunity every time. And I just ask them if they want to ask me anything, you know, a lot of them are not vaccinated. So we talk about that. Mm, sure. Well, and I'm picturing like you're, you know, you had 12 hour days in the yoga room to start. You had just the meetings trying to figure this out, going to California, starting this consulting business, traveling all over the country. I mean, so um, stressful, I'm sure. Just busy. How how were you doing emotionally throughout this? That's been really hard. Um, I, it's been much better recently, but it's been very difficult. And it, you know, it's like I said, it's not just that um, it's not just when I'm at, at the hospital, right. It's, it's all the time because everyone who knows me, if they have a COVID question, they call me and it's not only them, but they say to their friends or their, whoever they know, like, Oh, you have a coronavirus question. You could just call Dana. She'll answer you any time of day or night. And it's like, you know, um, I try to, now I, I need to protect myself from that because it's just been too much. Um, it's been very, very, very difficult, right? Because it's like my little brother got coronavirus. My sister got coronavirus despite being vaccinated. My father, who has had part of his lung removed, got coronavirus after being fully vaccinated. Um, and he, I had to navigate him going to the hospital when his oxygen saturation uh, was low. And I'm out in Colorado and he's in New York. So it's been very stressful um, from an anxiety perspective, from a PTSD perspective. I mean, I very often think about that man who is reaching out for his wife in, in California. That's a, that's a common thing that I think about. And also anytime I hear someone cough, it's like an immediate reaction in my body that sure. will be nice if it could go away. Right. But there was one other story I wanted to share with you that is a, a, a salient story, I guess, in my coronavirus um, life. And it actually happened pretty recently um, because everyone feels like they know a COVID doctor. So if anything coronavirus related happens, they could call me. So I, a friend of mine referred 
a neighbor of his to me. And he was a young, young guy, him and his wife, both unvaccinated. This was a few months ago. Okay. And they have two children at home, um, the 10 and 11 year old or so, just young, young children. And um, they went to a hospital because they, they were diagnosed with coronavirus. They were sent home on oxygen, which is unusual. That doesn't usually happen. Um, but they got sent home on oxygen and they were not doing well. They were checking their oxygen saturation at home and it was going down, down, down. So they called me um, and I said, you know, you, you need to get to the hospital. And they said, well, we're on our way to the hospital right now. So I'm talking to them while they're riding and their oxygen was low. So I asked them to increase their oxygen in the car on the way there because it was, it was a very difficult situation to navigate. I was trying to figure out if I should have an ambulance, you know, meet them on the highway, but they weren't interested in that. So they just went straight to the hospital. I called the emergency room and I said, these two patients are coming in, husband and wife. Um, they're hypoxic. Their oxygenation is low. Um, they said, the ER said, okay, we're, we're waiting for them. So then I stayed on the phone with the patient and then the patient got to the hospital garage and all of a sudden the oxygen is running out and he couldn't breathe. So I called the emergency room and I said, the guy, the patients are in that garage and they cannot breathe and they cannot make it into the ER. So can you please go and help them? And they said, we're sorry, Dr. Lerman, but um, we can't go to the garage. You have to call 911. So we got 911, we called 911 and the 911 and I'm on the phone with the patient and the patient's like, listen, doc, my oxygen, it's running out. Like the, the, the canister is, is almost empty. Um, so I had to have this, this man lay down in the garage of the hospital because if you lay down your abdomen, that could help you improve your oxygenation. So with laying down in the hospital garage, the EMS is not coming. I had to call the emergency room again. And I said, listen, like this is a young dad who is about to code in the hospital garage here. Um, can you please bring him a tank of oxygen and get him into the ER? So finally, after all of that, and meanwhile, I'm half an hour away in my car, not, not there trying to facilitate this. And then finally they got the husband and wife into the emergency room. The wife went to the ICU. The husband went to the regular floor. They were both there for about a week. And then they came home and uh, the husband sent me a message and said like, listen, I'd love, you know, thank you for helping me. I'd love to send you something. And I said, listen, I don't need a fruit basket. I don't want any of that. I'm like, can you just please tell people what happened to you? Can you please tell people that if you're not vaccinated, you're at risk for this, right? And they weren't, you know, this is a husband and a wife with separate DNA. There's no, you know, but right. this is what happens, right? With right. like coronavirus and an unvaccinated population, it seeks you out like a missile. So wow. that was that story. I wanted to share that. Oh, thank you. And, and yeah, I think, I think knowing that it's recent, like, because yes, a lot of people are vaccinated, but it, it's still transmitting. I'm glad they're okay. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So what, what are the things that you've done to, you know, to, to just help with your coping during this time? Um. Well, what I did was probably wildly atypical to what most infectious disease doctors would have done in a viral pandemic. Um, as soon as I got vaccinated, I actually jumped on a plane and I went to Costa Rica um, to an ayahuasca retreat. And I drank ayahuasca for four nights um, and had a very powerful, transformative experience that probably saved my life. Um, yeah, so it was un unusual. You know, when I was there, it was just very 
when, when you do ayahuasca and you're having a challenging time and the shaman will come over to you and they actually um, will drink this special solution and they spit it on you in prayer. And um, that's not a real COVID friendly um, <laughs> interaction as you can imagine. But um, that's where I was. That's what, ha- that's what happened to me. So um, wow, I'm grateful I, I, for having that opportunity actually. Well, yeah. And I, I imagine you use the word transformative and it's hard to put into words and summarize in a way, I'm sure. But if you could try to share in a few sentences, what about it was so meaningful? How did it save your life? Possibly. Yeah, it, it just, it really just, um, I was so focused on the politics and the, of the masking and the vaccines and the virus of itself in and of itself. I was so angry at like my family who was Trump supporters and there was so much anger inside of me and I, I was focusing on all of the wrong things. And it just showed, it just gave me a different way to look at everything in my life, really. So, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, and I was, I was lucky in that when I was there, um, because I had been thinking about leaving infectious disease and pursuing a different path. And during one of my nights at ceremony, that was shown to me that that is what I should, in the the direction that I should be going in. So, Wow. Yeah. Now I'm sitting in a office where I provide ketamine therapy to patients with mental illness. So, so that was where it was, that was where it was leading you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, and I definitely want to hear so much about that, but I, I'm wondering if you could even just describe with like a couple of words when you say I was focused on the wrong things, like what, what, what that was telling you to focus on or what that helped you to see perhaps. I was more angry. I was just angry. I was angry at Donald Trump. I was angry at the whole Republican party. I was angry at my family for not like not seeing what I was seeing and not like, not like how dare they not be able to see through my eyes, what I see on a day-to-day basis. I mean, my dad, my dad is a Fox news supporting Trump loving individual. And my dad at the peak of the pandemic was on Fox and friends without a mask on. And I lost my mind when I saw that I, I just felt so misunderstood and like nobody cared about anything that I've been fighting for or doing this whole time. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, my, I feel like all of my energy was directed at this like negativity and I just, ayahuasca really helped me to get past that. And I look at people a lot differently now and, and even Donald Trump, right? Like I, I just have this like feeling now that people, adults are really just small children um, in an adult body. And I think that when you look at people like that, you can look at them with a lot more compassion and, and understanding. So, wow. So compassion and understanding from anger to, to compassion. It's pretty huge. Yeah. Jump. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also, I look at anti-vaxxers a different way also, you know, I look at them like I had an interaction on a zoom meeting once where I was doing vaccine education and I was face to face with a person who was against vaccines. 
And I said to her, I said, listen, I see you and how passionate you are about not using vaccines. Like I, and I, I feel equally passionate, but we just have these two polarizing like uh, backgrounds and, and ideas um, and just validating her, like her degree of, or just like the amount that she really cared about this. I think got me a lot, a a long way with her. And I just tried to highlight that, listen, like the difference between us is our resources and where we get our information, right? Mm -hmm. I get my information from the same place that I have always gotten it from the infectious disease society of America, which is where I go for guidelines to treat your meningitis or your gonorrhea or your HIV or your complicated pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to really highlight that, but I looked at her, very differently than I think I would have before. Well, and it took the personal out of the differences. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it could be more human to human. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, so so you said you got a very clear image of of doing something different. And now you mentioned giving ketamine in your clinic. How, like, what happened when you got home? So... Right before I actually left for ayahuasca, I enrolled in a course um, with the Integrative Psychiatry Institute in Boulder uh, doing psychedelic-assisted therapy. And so I enrolled in this course, and then I went and did ayahuasca, because actually in the course, they recommend that you do psychedelics. Um, And so not all psychedelics are legal. (laughs) Um, So I went and did ayahuasca in um, Costa Rica, like I said. And then I came back and have really decided that I need to, I, right now I feel like I have one foot in coronavirus and one foot in psychedelics. And I kind of describe my like coronavirus foot as being like stuck in this mud. And I really just want to lift that foot out of the mud and just place it in this like psychedelic uh, flower patch over there. Um, but I still have, a, I feel like I still have a commitment to patients and the community with coronavirus. Um, and I have a lot of clients who rely on me to do COVID risk mitigation work for their companies but I feel like very soon I will be able to get out of that mud um, and then completely just shift my my whole career honestly towards that uh, of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy work I'm not a therapist um, but I function as a guide I have a practice here in Evergreen Colorado called open mind space where I do ketamine um, I do ketamine for people in that I give them an injection. Um, but I am very different than a ketamine clinic. I don't just hook you up to ketamine and leave you in a room by yourself. Uh, I sit with you the entire time and hold that space for, for my patients. So it's so mm-hmm. far, it's been um, pretty well received. Yeah. Well, and I have this, I love the the visual of the mud and flower patch. And I think not just coronavirus, but also you know, Western medicine, so to speak. And then, and, and I don't know what you want to call it. Um, I guess, can, can you share a little bit more about how you look at it in terms of comparing your, the space you're in now with psychedelic medicine to that of your training and how you think about the contrast? Sure. I think that psychedelic, me- the, the field of psychedelic medicine really allows the provider to be more true to themselves. Um, you know, in my Zoom calls that I sit there with these um, 
large philanthropic families or huge multi-billion dollar corporations. I can't, I have to cover up my necklace or I cannot show my tattoo on my forearm. I can't really be myself, um, which takes a toll and is, is challenging. Um, I also think that Western medicine um, overall, honestly, is broken. I think that the foundation of it, of it is broken. I feel like we as providers do not take care of ourselves enough. And I think that we do not have the ability to really deal with the things that we see on a day-to-day basis that most people aren't talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's why the rates of physician suicide is only growing every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, whether or not physicians want to admit it, they have developed these pretty nasty coping mechanisms for what they see on a day to day. That could be making, not every physician does this. I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I've seen it myself and that physicians will, you know, make fun of someone or, you know, just kind of like really just blow off something serious about a patient or, as a coping mechanism so they could literally tolerate what they just saw in that room, right? Because it's, you you can imagine you're seeing these horrible things every day. Um, And how do you deal with that? And and I think that med school doesn't teach us how to deal with that. Mm, Sure. At all. Sure. So So over time, it's just like, how can, what can I do to like self, have some self-preservation in this, not be as affected? I get that. Yeah. How do you how do you look at just the lens of like how people are healed in the con- from the context of like a more Western medicine perspective versus mm-hmm. versus like ketamine? Yeah, so this is exactly how it is. <laughs> uh, you come to the hospital or the doctor's office, and you have um, an arrhythmia or you have an infectious disease, and and I, the doctor. In Western medicine, I'm going to I'm going to cure you, and here's the medicine, and I cured you. Um, versus psychedelics, where the provider, or practitioner, guide, whomever gives the patient psychedelic substance, whether it's psilocybin, ketamine, ayahuasca, iboga, whatever whatever it is, um, the the patient is the one that heals themselves. Right, so it's it's the psychedelics is really tapping into your own inner inner healer, your inner knowing, inner intelligence, um, and giving you the ability to look at things in a different way, so that you can do the work and you can heal your own self. So it's a it's it's not like you know you're 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 thanking the doctor for healing you, or you know in psychedelic therapeutic sessions, unless you're sessions unless you're doing MDMA. Um, the sessions are very internalized, right? Ketamine therapy, psilocybin therapy, ayahuasca. You're really on your own navigating your own uh, internal psychedelic landscape and your own um, repressed memories and emotions, traumas. Um, And then the integration part with a therapist is where a lot of that kind of can be solidified in what you learn during that experience. But the patients are the ones really doing the work. Wow. So. It kind of just like when you said that, I felt like tingles because thinking about it, because it's the, I thought of the word, word like inner wisdom or truth or mm-hmm. mm, it's really powerful. I mean, wow. Can you, so how long have you been doing open mind space? How long has it been open? 
Um, November one is when my insurance started. So oh, okay, so <laughs> it's been new. Yeah, is, is there great? Is there a is there anything you feel like you can share thus far early into it as far as like patient experience, what people have said about it? I mean, obviously confidentially, of course, but yeah, yeah. Um, so at Open Mind Space, I do something very different in that, like I said, I don't just hook you up to ketamine and leave you in a room. Um, I have in my, I call it a journey space. In my journey space, I have yoga mats um, and we start off the session doing gentle yoga together I, side by side. I'm not in front leading this course. I'm not, it's a, it's a very deep connected time for me and my client. And then we do a brief meditation after that. And if the client feels like they want to set an intention for that session, they set an intention and then um, they get tucked into a nice, comfortable couch and I give them ketamine and then, then they're on their way and I sit, I sit next to them if something comes up. So sometimes the patient completely is internalized, doesn't say anything and has an experience and then wants to talk about it with me afterwards. So we'll chat about what came up. And sometimes in the middle of the session, the patient will call out for me. They want to know that they're not alone. So that has been um, something that I feel like I felt all along that that was an important thing. And when I actually see it happening and patients saying to me that they appreciate that, um, Mm -hmm. not being alone, uh, it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's such, it feels like a very intimate thing in a way just to be present to that experience, even though their it's their own internal process totally and i and i didn't what i didn't mention is before i give anyone ketamine we do a one to usually two hour free consultation and during that time i ask a lot of questions so i can learn more about the client and what might surface um during a session so that i could better hold space for that person Mm. That's awesome. Do you, I don't want to make it so, so technical, but can you share a little bit about how ketamine works, why it can be so effective? Yeah. So I think that ketamine, like other psychedelics, gives you that ability to tap into that inner healer and specifically ketamine gives you really a lot of patients, a, a dissociative state where you feel like you're out of your body. The question is, and I don't think that anyone knows the answer is, do you have to have this psychedelic experience to actually get the benefits of the medicine? So, I mean, ketamine, the idea is that you don't have to have that psychedelic experience. You don't have to feel out of your body, like you're flying on a magic carpet or you're falling through a black hole to actually get the benefits. And, um, so I think, I think that any ketamine provider, it's really amazing to see, cause I do it here in my clinic. Um, I do depression, anxiety, stress scores before and after the session. So I do it before the first session and after the sixth session. And you can really see so clearly that the scores are, are really change uh, within those six sessions with that person. So, wow. like significant long winded answer. From, yeah, no, that's awesome. Like from someone who would meet diagnostic criteria for major depression, depression yeah. and then uh-huh. it would, and then not after those six sessions in some cases. Yeah. Or wow. 
And I had, um, yeah. And the last, the last anecdotal story that I'll share with you is that the reason, another reason why I was so eager to pursue ketamine therapy for people is that my very best friend has struggled for a long time with depression, suicidal ideation, PTSD. Um, and he ended up going to ketamine therapy and after his fourth session, he no longer had thoughts of killing himself. And so this is my very best friend in the whole world who literally wrote me a suicide letter. He never gave it to me, but he told me that he wrote this and he shared that with me after those thoughts had, had gone away. So, you know, it's not a magic bullet, but it really can, I mean, it really can help people. Like this is a medication that people use when someone's trying to jump off of a bridge. Like it, it really helps immediate suicidal ideation. Wow. And think in four sessions, I mean, that's incredible. It's incredible. I I mean, I'm so interested in hearing this and my background as a therapist too. Like I think about how people can be in therapy for a really long time and sometimes find great benefits and sometimes not so much. And I, Mm -hmm. I also just feel like I hear more in the news about psychedelic medicine, definitely a lot of research coming. I mean, it feels like an exciting place to be in this field. I have to think, can you, can you share kind of your thoughts on like the state of this field, the research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's been, the research has been in development for a long time and trying to get these legalized has been also in development for a long time. I think maps was started in 1986. I want to say with Rick Doblin, uh, they've obviously made huge strides and it's remarkable what they've done yet at the same time, I think what we have just demonstrated with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, right? We could do that with this. And there's no reason why we're not, why we shouldn't be doing it because we have data. These are safe medicines and we know they are. And, you know, we, there's funding there. All of it is there. It's just the it's just big pharma is in the way right now, and in getting all these patents and all these things is what is making this whole process be so drawn out. And it's so sad because COVID nineteen it's obviously a huge problem, but mental illness is far worse and is far more pervasive. So it would be really nice if actually they could figure out and they they could figure out how to do uh, something similar to getting these vaccines out. They could do this with psychedelics. That's my, you know, real take home is something that I would love to see happen. And I feel like your take home as someone who really knows it from the perspective of Mm -hmm. COVID and being a physician and then doing this work. I mean, it's the, it's the perfect blend in that way. Um, So what, what do you like so much about what you're doing now and what, like where you feel like this could go? Mm. I love what I'm doing now. It just feels so right when I'm sitting there next to a patient who's navigating uh, their their brain, honestly, that their con- <laughs> all of the different parts of their brain and, and their repressed memories and traumas. I think that it's such a rewarding thing to be able to be a safe uh, safe space or hold a safe space for that person. Um, I really think that I... I love the field of psychedelics 
also because it's so new, which is why I liked the field of coronavirus as an entrepreneur. Um, I hate coronavirus, but as an entrepreneur, it was a level playing field, right? So anyone, it was anyone's game, right? It's very difficult to think of a new product, think of a new company in a world where everything already exists. <laughs> like it's right, it's, it's, right. it's like almost impossible. But when you have something like a viral pandemic, or when you have something like psychedelics, which is brand new ish, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then I think that the possibilities are are endless. So it's exciting to be in that space. And psychedelics are obviously much more fun than coronavirus. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> do, you, do you have thoughts of like where this could go? I mean, obviously a lot perhaps tied to the research and legality of it. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I, right now I'm currently exploring um, something similar to Mind Bloom. Uh, doing that, I think I could offer something a little bit different for, for clients. Mind bloom is an at-home ketamine therapy. Okay. So, but there's a lot of, in the psychedelic assisted therapy community, there's a lot of people who don't think that's a good idea, um, that it could be dangerous. So I really want to do it right. I really want to have, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy, but that's a community that I really would like on my, on my side. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. so I'm exploring that. I'm also looking to open a similar to what I'm doing here in open mind space. I'm looking to open something like that, uh, down in Denver to do more people at one time. And actually, um, kind of what we were thinking of doing is having a group yoga, a group meditation, and then our, our clients would individually go off into their own rooms with, um, with a, a trip sitter, basically someone who's trained to navigate what, what might come up for them, a safe person. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking to do that. Um, it's actually happening sooner rather than later. So. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, I was picturing like the one-on-one with you and that sounds amazing. And I can also see this idea of like being connected in a group, knowing that your individual experiences, but you're in it together being cool too. I, I, yeah, I like, I like yeah. all of it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very important. I think that there's some sort of community aspect to a psychedelic experience is important because we are all connected. And the sooner you feel that, um, I think the better off you are and the better off that the people you are around. <laughs> mm, I love that. And I wonder if that's maybe a good place to stop just this idea of connection. And that's, that's super powerful. Um, well, this, this is like such a fascinating conversation. And I feel like we could deep dive into each part of this so much more. But I I thank you so much for sharing your story, your work during this time, and then how this has changed you personally and professionally. Thank you. It was awesome talking to you. Yeah. And we'll with look you. to see more of your work. Yeah. We'll look forward to seeing more of your work, I'm sure. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review and share with a friend. And if you're enthusiastic about something and want to share it, please contact me at michelle at enthusiasmdiaries.com.